Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Needs, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, 
articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Catherine. Hello, Susan. How are you tonight? Oh, I had a wonderful day. The first violet bloomed here today, and the bloodroot bloomed today. Those are great days. Really, (laughs) just the best days of all. And we have a very exciting guest this evening, Barbara Whitehorse Volk, an artist, equine podiatrist, forest and weed farmer, herbalist, and a teacher who is passionate about food, medicine, living simply, and helping others. She's been using herbal medicine for 40 years. And she is um, frequently at my uh, Wednesday evening Zoom meeting for my mentored and correspondence course students. And I'm very excited that I get to have an extended amount of time to talk to her and her alone. Because, of course, at the Zoom meetings, there's a lot of us, and we try to give each other room and time to speak. So hooray for uh, spending some time this evening with Barbara Whitehorse Volk. That'll be around 9 o'clock here on the East Coast, or about an hour and 20 minutes from now, wherever you are. So come back or stay tuned for us. So how are things going up there? Last time we talked, there was still snow on the ground where you live. Still snow on the ground, but lots more sun, Susan. Lots more mm-hmm. sun. <laughs> are the trees Are the buds on the trees starting to break at all? Any tree flowers? Not quite yet. I've been thinking all year, like, waiting, you know, for them again. I love this time of year, but not quite yet. Pretty soon. People often talk about how beautiful deciduous forests are in the fall, and it's true, they are. But in the very early time, just before leaf break, when those trees are actually flowering, and many people don't realize that the trees flower, the mountains here are just a symphony of pastel pinks and yellows and whites and greens. And I saw the most exquisite pussy willow today. I met White Feather. We went for a walk at one of our favorite places, Wilson State Park. It looked like the whole town of Woodstock was out at Wilson State Park. It was pretty funny, people trying to stay six feet away from each other. There were so many of us there on the paths. Um, but we did it, smiling oh at each other. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, That's the usual pussy willows are like kind of like a, a pussy paw. They're soft and they're gray and they're fuzzy. And these were like maybe 10 times as big and more opened out. And each little um, yellow at the end so that the aspect of it was, was like this kind of big pussy willow that had turned into a fireworks. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It was like the, the flower had oh, exploded into this that. big white and yellow bundle. Just amazing. I'm sure that it, it's a different kind of willow, very very clearly that. But, oh, yeah, the there's beauty so many of, this, of, of this time of year. Absolutely. And I went out and made triple goddess vinegar. And it's a, a story that I have oft repeated 
of how I went out one day and sat among the Artemisia vulgaris, which all books call mugwort, and I said quite blithely to her, Good day, mugwort, how are you today? And she said, quite annoyed, Do not call me mugwort. Yes, I And I said, Oh my, I have nothing to do with the fantasies that people have when they have their noses in mugs. And I did a little research, and another name is Alewort. She was used to brew beer, and that's how she got her name, Mugwort. Because wart means, of course, plant or really? weed. Really? Oh. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. I so she said, I have nothing to do with the fantasies of people who have their noses in mugs. I give you the true visions of wise old age. Don't you see my white hair on every leaf? And, of course, most of the Artemisias have white hairs on the underside of the leaf. Some of them are white all over. People who plant, you know... Full moon gardens, gardens that shine in the full moon, usually put artemisias in, like silver queen or silver princess. They're beautiful, beautiful plants. So I said, all right, you are, you are cronewort. She said, yes, and by calling me cronewort, you will not confuse me with motherwort. And I have since seen that she's quite right, that a great many people confuse motherwort and mugwort. They seem very similar to them. Once they see the plants, they don't confuse them because the plants look very different, but the names sound very similar to them. So I said, okay, we'll call you cronewort, and then that will you know, differentiate you from motherwort. And, of course, then it became very quickly obvious to me that there had to be a maidenwort around somewhere. She is a triple goddess, right? Maiden she is, mother she is, crone she is. So I spent some time wandering around saying, hello, is the maiden here? I spent some time laying on the ground saying, hello, is the maiden anywhere around? And I'm glad to say it did not take me a really long time before I laid in the right place. And Stellaria Media said, I'm the little star lady. I'm maidenwort. Of course, its common name is chickweed, right? Yes, sir. I let you do the punchline. I do love this story, and thank you for telling it again. <laughs> chickweed. Chickweed. <laughs> and chickweed is a really early spring plant. Once it starts to get, like, really hot, chickweed just uh, is a fainting Victorian lady there. Motherwort, of course, I usually use at the, when it's flowering and make a tincture of it because it's pretty bitter, even though it's in the mint family. And... Uh, so I don't usually make vinegar of it, but just as the leaves are emerging in the spring, actually, they're, it's kind of evergreen, but just as they're starting to grow um, this time of the year, they can be used in vinegar. And then, of course, the cronewort will just take over my garden if I let it. So I'm out there pulling it up, roots and rhizomes and all, and just brushing or shaking the dirt off of that so Lucky that I actually you. get a little dirt in my vinegar. Lucky you. It's- because I, I want what's in the in the dirt. So we have cronewort and then motherwort and then maidenwort for our triple goddess vinegar. Yes indeed. Triple goddess vinegar. Triple goddess vinegar. Do we have anybody with questions tonight? Oh we sure do, Susan. Let's patch some folks through to talk to Susan Wheat. The first one I see is a nine five one area code. Hi, Hello. Susan. 
Hi. Um, Hi. I have a question about drinking hard water, um, which I get from a well. Um, So over a long period of time, is that in any way harmful? Not that I know of. Okay. Um, Hard water means there are minerals in the water. Yeah. And people don't like that because soap doesn't lather well when there's minerals in the water. Right. And so they don't feel like they can really wash their dishes or wash their hair or wash their hands because the soap doesn't lather. So they soften the water. And I certainly know very, very little about it, but I do know that water softening machines use salt, right? Okay. So they soften the water by somehow adding salt or processing it with salt. You know, I would I would look into that if you're thinking of softening the water. There's certainly, you know, reasons for doing it. I remember showering at a place in Germany where the water was so hard that after I had shampooed my hair, it felt like cardboard. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not quite like that here, but I just... Uh... I didn't know if that would be harmful to the body other than, like, well, in any way. So, No, people actually pay good money to get water that has minerals in it. Okay. Okay, good to know. Um, that was my question. You, so, you could probably have it tested and find out what minerals are in it. Right, yeah. Usually yeah. your cooperative extension can do it or tell you where it can be done for little or no money. Okay. No, whether or not those facilities are operating right now, I do not know. But you can always try. Okay. Yeah, and also thank you very much. And also thank you very much for your uh, COVID-19 free course. Uh, I've shared it with everyone, so I'm very grateful. And from the reports that I'm reading, I would like to add for all of us to please start treating yourself As soon as you have any suspicious symptoms, I'm seeing some very terrible stories about people who are thinking maybe they have it, but they don't have bad enough symptoms to get tested. And then by the time they do have bad enough symptoms to get tested, when they're willing to start treating themselves, they wind up in the hospital and some of them are dying. The great thing about herbs is if you take herbs because you think you have COVID-19 and you don't, you have a, only have a cold, you haven't hurt yourself. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like to encourage all of us to not only have our herbal allies at the ready, but not to wait to take care of ourselves. That's the slightest excuse. Yeah, and I also enjoyed your um, teleseminar with uh, Paul Bergen. Paul Bergner, yes, and there'll be another teleseminar, especially for women of childbearing years. This Thursday, I'll be talking to Astrid Grove, a midwife, about what to do if you want to get pregnant during the COVID-19 pandemic, what to do if you are pregnant, and if she's doing anything different about birth. Okay, yeah, I saw that in your newsletter. Yeah. So, great. Okay. Okay, As we have a whole host of people lined up, 
for yes, me doing thank you, Susan, teleseminars so and bringing you the news from as many wise people as I can think of and lay my hands on. Wonderful. Green blessings. Green blessings. Thanks for your support. Okay. Bye-bye. Susan, we have a 215 area code. Hi, Susan. I've called a couple times in the past six months. Um, I'm your new learner in the past year and a half, Um, so I am still shy. But uh, (laughs) I have a curiosity. Um, I've heard people talk about dark circles and their eyes um, casually a lot through growing up. Um, But I am seeming to notice with my eyes, I feel like there is um, quite darkness, like a half moon from the top of my eyebrow along my nose to the bottom of my eye. It's like a, a half moon on both eyes. And I don't quite understand why that is or what it could be. Um, I just finished my period for good in March, um, but I'm just... So how do you know you finished it for good in March? Um, like I, I believe I'm fully in menopause now. Okay, that does not mean you finished it for good. I'm sorry. Uh, so I haven't had a period in a year. I have no idea. Uh, okay. Related. All right. Yeah. Now that's a little different than than you finished it in March. Mm-hmm. I will say, however, I have known women to go two, sometimes even three years, and then start menstruating regularly. And similarly, I've known women to go two or three years and then get pregnant. Okay. So just so you're aware. All right. But at this point, you have passed the 13 moon mark and uh, are a crone. Yeah. So you're wondering if this darkness in your eyes has anything to do with that? Yeah. There is a kind of diagnosis called facial diagnosis. And in facial diagnosis, different parts of the body are associated with different areas of the face. For instance, the earlobe is associated with the heart. A plump, healthy-looking earlobe indicates a strong heart. An earlobe with a crease across it indicates a heart that isn't as strong. Upper lip is the small intestine. The lower lip is the large intestine. Because our intestines often go through changes as we age, older people often have thinner lips than younger people. The area under the eye is said to be connected to the kidneys. And so it's thought when there is darkness under the eye that that is indicative of the kidneys wanting to be aided. Exactly where or how that appears is not so important as 
whether or not it makes sense to you to believe in a system that matches parts of the face to parts of the body. Okay. Now, if this isn't under the eye and it's on the side and the side of the nose. Uh-huh. Well, your nose is under your eyes, isn't it? Well, it's like the tear duct. And it, like the so the darkness is from like the top of the eyebrow through uh-huh. like you know in between the eye and the nose. Mm-hmm. So it's not like underneath the eye. So what you could do is find a book on facial diagnosis and see they call that area. Okay. And is there any kind of? I guess there's no herbal suggestion until you try to figure out what the root of the problem is. I'm not sure there's a problem. Okay. It didn't used to always be there. And that's the only thing that's changed about your body? No. Um, I gained a bit of weight, a little bit of weight, um, I I went through a lot of fatigue during mm-hmm. the last year. We um, change as we age. We always change as children. We love it. We say, oh, look, I'm getting taller. Oh, look, I outgrew my clothes, you know. As adults, mm-hmm. we kind of mm-hmm. we have a great cartoon that I once saw done by Maxine, and it showed um, a little kid in a, you know, like a, a wheelie thing, saying faster, and then a, a child on a, Tricycle saying faster and a child on a bicycle saying faster and a teenager on a scooter saying faster and a young adult in a car saying faster, right? And an older adult in a sports car going faster. And then an adult in a wheelchair going slower. So sometimes welcoming those changes. I will also tell you that when I realized that I was probably going to be helping people, I decided that I would interview all of the people who were doing work in alternative medicine around me that were 80 or older, and I asked them a series of questions, and one of them was, if there's any one organ that I should focus on, what would that be? And 90% of them said the liver. Huh. So you cannot go wrong nourishing your liver, and dandelion, of course, is a great liver nourisher. And what a wonderful time of the year to become friends with dandelion. I have that in my refrigerator now. All right. What part of it did you harvest? I didn't harvest it. I bought I bought the greens from the farmer market. Great. The dandelion greens. Yeah. Okay. There's a wonderful recipe for dandelion greens Italiano in the uh, childbearing year book. Okay. So that's what that's what I would think is eat more dandelion, you know, make some dandelion wine this year, make some dandelion vinegars, make some dandelion tincture, do a lot of things with dandelion, become real really good close friends with dandelion. Still do the nourishing herbal infusion. Oh, absolutely. Okay, I did my linden today. Good for you. I'm drinking comfrey. <laughs> Hooray for our lungs. Hooray for our immune systems. 
<laughs> Thanks for your okay, call. Well, thank you. Thank Green you. blessings. Good night. You too. Susan, we have an 828 area code. Eight two eight, do you hear us? Come in, eight two eight. Hmm. Okay, we're gonna try nine zero eight. Can you hear Hello? us nine zero eight? Hey. Hello. How Hello? are you tonight? <laughs> Hi, Susan. Um oh, I'm calling you about um you know, on my many walks lately uh, in my neighborhood, uh, on like sort of <clears throat> roads that are well traveled and well walked, um, I've noticed a lot of, you know, interesting plants like dandelion and chickweed. And um, I was wondering if you, if one were to harvest, sorry, right by the highway. Um, if one were to harvest, uh, you know, some dandelion leaves, greens, or some flowers, or some chickweed, um, would would you wash it if you thought that dogs might have peed on it or something like that? Is that a concern? Urine is sterile. Okay. In fact, in most places in the world, if you get a bad wound, it is better to pee on it than to put water on it. Uh Uh-huh. If you want to bacterially contaminate your plants by washing them with water, you can do that. Well, no. But it's not as though it's going to... Eliminate something you shouldn't be ingesting. Okay. So if they're growing along the road and they're offering themselves and straight into a jar with some 100-proof vodka or something like that. Um, Yeah. I take it you're speaking rather metaphorically. I mean, I do chop up my plants before I tincture them or make vinegar of them. And I do find it very important to chop them up. As a matter of fact, I was just reading in a science magazine, somebody had written it in and asked, how accurate are the calorie counts of foods? And the answer was they're horribly inaccurate. And one of the reasons is that you get far more calories from the food that's cut up. So you get more calories from peanut halves than from whole peanuts. So when you're making tincture or vinegar or any kind of remedy, it's important to cut the herb up and to cut it up fairly small. And then Mm -hmm. your remedy is going to be better quality. Okay. So I wouldn't just just pop it in a jar. Right. (laughs) Well, yes, I, I was a bit, you know, skipping over that step, but I, I was focusing on the idea of washing it or not washing it. So I I understand. If you're going to make a vinegar or a 
a tincture. It doesn't hurt to wash it. If you're going to make an oil, you cannot wash it. Mm. Nor would I wash anything I was going to make honey with. What was that? If I was going to make an herbal honey, I would not wash the herb. Uh, Okay, okay. So for oil or honey, you wouldn't want any water to be present. Mm -hmm. I always tell the funny story of this woman, local woman, who called me up and she said, I don't know what's wrong. I just cannot get my mint to dry without molding up. I said, that's very weird. She said, please, will you come over, harvest some mint with me, and we'll hang it up to dry, and we'll see what happens. I said, sure. Sure, we to pay me. I went over and went to her garden. We harvested mint. We came in the kitchen. We put it on the table. I said, okay, now we're going to need some string. She said, oh, I just use rubber bands. I said, aha, that's your first problem. Mold almost always grows under rubber bands. We're not going to use rubber bands. We're going to use some string. Where can I find some string? And she said, in that drawer over there. And I turned and looked in that drawer. And behind me, I heard, what do you think she was doing? Washing it. Right. Washing it, tying it up with rubber bands, and hanging it up to develop great colonies of mold. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're also not going to wash any plants that we're going to hang up to dry. Okay. All right. All Thanks right. for your question. Thank you so much. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. Susan, the 828 caller has rejoined us, so I'm hoping right. 828 can hear us. Perhaps you were on mute. Can you hear us, 828? You may need to take your phone off mute. How does she do that? Yeah, well, there's got to be a mute button on your phone, because I have you connected, 828, if you hear us. Aw. Okay, we're going to let them work with that, and we're going to take another caller, 818. 818, can you hear us? Hello? Hi. Hi, Susan. I, What's I would up like tonight? To tell you, I would like to tell you a success story. So, of course. Um, okay, I did something really stupid. I don't know. I listened to some podcast, bought some kind of lotion, and put it on, they said, put it on the back of your neck. So I did. And then I got all these horrible, like, scabs and pimples on the back of my neck. And this went on for eight months. Finally, I thought, what would Susan tell me to do? Because I wanted to call in, but with the coronavirus, but what would Susan tell me? She would say yarrow. So I whipped out my yarrow tincture that I made five years ago. And I put it on a cloth and started putting it on my neck. It was gone, all these horrible scabs. And then my fault, because I keep putting my hands on them and reinfecting them, gone in three days. Yay. That's after eight months of washing and scrubbing and showering and going and then embarrassed at work because I, I hope nobody looks at the back of my neck. Yarrow, three days, yarrow tincture. And I made it from the dry tincture like maybe five or six years ago, thinking, I don't know if this works. So I've been using it just for mouthwash. Uh, you know what? What would Susan say? Because I couldn't get through. Um, at three days, that that was it. Just rub it on the back or wherever your thing that won't heal. I think it was just a bacterial infection that I wouldn't keep my hands off of. You know how you got to put your hands on your face and your neck? Especially if it's irritating, it's hard to keep your hands off it. Yes. So, But I, 
literally the minute I put that yarrow on there, it was just like, wow, this is it. My neck just knew. And then I just kept mm. doing it every, like every, I think every, like, when I could come home from work, do it. And then three hours, four hours, whenever I think of it, it's gone. After eight Yay, months of having I just thought I'd give you a success story. And then I also wanted to say thank you for taking that call when Rebecca was still here two weeks ago. For the lady in Florida, they're doing the stinging nettle with the ice cubes. I'm going to catch up with her and see how that's going because they're kind of learning this now. But I, I think that's thank. I just wanted to thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you for okay. calling in and sharing your success story. Hooray for Garrow and hooray for you. Yes, yes. And, oh, thank you so much, Susan. I just wanted to tell you that eight months of torture, I just had to say, what would Susan say? <laughs> right. When I asked Yarrow how she wanted me to personify her, she appeared mm-hmm. to me as a very small oriental woman, maybe, you know, like four foot six, right? Very small. Mm-hmm. says, I run a school of self-defense. Wow. Right. And I thought, right, this is this is the woman who can kick you and, like, break your arm, you know? <laughs> She is really, you know, you want self-defense. You call on Madam, and she said, call me Madam Yero. I'm like, yes, Madam Yero, you bet. <laughs> yeah, and I thought I, all these years, I thought, oh, I made it wrong because I listened to your first podcast and I got it wrong. I did mm-hmm. it from the dried plant. But then I thought, you know, let's give this a whirl. It, it's still well, it's the great thing about herbal medicine. It's really hard to do it wrong. Yeah, sometimes if it's, if you did it a little wrong, just use a little more, experiment. Right. Just give it a feel. Yes. You got it. And then, oh, I, okay, so one question. Milk, thistle, should I grind up the seed when I'm making tincture, or is it okay to use the seed? The tincture I, I is the usually thing. made of milk, thistle, seed, and mm-hmm. I've always just dumped it in whole. Okay. If you have a safe way to grind it up, you can, but it is an oil-bearing seed, so it will clog most grinders. Yeah, and it and it seems to get too hot, and then maybe that's not good unless you make the tincture right away, I'm thinking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Susan. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. Good night. We have a 917 caller. Oh, hello. Is that me? Hello. Yes, it is. I'm sorry. Susan dropped, and I'm just going to wait one second. She'll come back in. I'm so sorry. Oh, my goodness. She'll be right is back this, with us in one are second. Are you crackles that I'm hearing? Is that um, me? I'm sorry? Oh, I'm just wondering about oh, the quality Susan. of the Oh, hi, Susan. All Hello? Right, just one moment here. Here we have her. Sorry about that. Thank you. Hi, what's up tonight? Hi. Um, I hope that this crackling line isn't uh, isn't too horrible. So happy that that other caller called and asked about um, your advice about chopping the herbs. I was calling to talk about um, purple nettle growing um, profusely in my yard, and you are the only person who I have found any information who's written really. Um, thoughtfully about purple metal. Um, 
And so this notion of it being first of all just all over the yard and also great for seasonal allergies and reading your public consumption is also good for Okay, let's meat. stop for one minute. Okay. What plant are you talking about? I am talking about purple nettle. That I that is not a plant that I know. Oh, let me let me pull up your blog post. Uh, oh, purple dead nettle. Purple dead nettle. Yes, my apologies. Has nothing to do with nettle. Right. No, I know that. It's a mint a mint family. In the mint family. Okay. All right. So that's why I wanted to be clear. When nettle first emerges from the ground, it is purple. Okay. When stinging nettle first starts growing, it is very purple. Purple dead nettle, Lamia purpurea, is a totally different plant. As you say, it's in the mint family. Right. Okay. And I when I just I just um as, as you wrote in your blog post from a while, well, I guess from 2018. But there's just not a lot of people who are, who are using it, and, and it doesn't seem to me that they're all because I was searching for it and I couldn't find hardly any information. Um, so I did. I am making um, uh, a tea out of it for a kind of arthritic symptoms that I've been suffering with all of the sitting that I've been doing, um, being in uh, self isolation. Um, You've been doing so, some what isolation? Oh, just too much sitting and so I have just my hips and my kind of arthritic inflammation and I was thinking got it. purple dead nettle since it's growing right there in my backyard might be a nice thing for that and so you're making a tea with the fresh flowering plant right is that is that um do I have the gist of it seems okay to me there are mints that are aromatic, and there are mints that are not aromatic. And purple dead nettle is not aromatic. The mint family plants that are aromatic are frequently used as teas, and the fresh plants are frequently used because the aromas are carried by volatile oils, which means oils that very quickly volatilize or dissipate into the air. Okay. Seeing as how Lamia purpurea, purple dead nettle, has none of these volatile oils, I don't see any advantage to using it fresh in a tea. Oh, you don't see any advantage. I'm not exactly sure what constituent you would get by making it as a tea from the fresh plant. Okay. There is no nutrition and little medicinal value available from fresh plants. Ah, so right. Plants I'm reading your blog. Plants walls in order to get to what's in the plant, we have to break the cell wall. We can do that by heating it sufficiently, by freezing it, by fermenting it, by drying or dehydrating it, or by covering it in oil. So if I had to use fresh purple dead nettle, I would 
probably decoct it. You will find in a lot of the older herbals where they're using fresh herbs, they decoct it, which means they make a strong brew of it, and then they boil it down. Uh-huh. But this is where people who are interested say, hmm, I wonder what the constituents are in purple dead nettle. Right? Folklore has it that it's been used for this and this and this. What constituents in this plant would indicate that use? And what are those constituents most dissolvable in? And you might decide you want to make a tincture of your fresh purple dead nettle. Constituents that you're looking for are mostly alcohol-soluble. The wonderful thing about using 100-proof vodka is that it's half water and half alcohol. So when you make a tincture, you generally pick up most of the alcohol-soluble and a great many of the water-soluble parts of the plant as well. Mm-hmm. They're very poor for extracting minerals, for instance. Water and vinegar are much better for extracting minerals. And it's one of the reasons why we use different menstruums, water, alcohol, Right, vinegar, honey, and so on. Those are menstruums. Why we use different menstruums? Because they allow us to extract different constituents from the plant. On the other hand, placebo medicine is a real thing. And if you have a relationship with the plant and you put a few bits of it into some hot water and drink it, it could have an enormous healing effect on you. It doesn't have to be through constituents or through actual physical things, right? It can just be through your beliefs. Well, absolutely, and, and just the, the, it's such a wonderful thing to be uh, growing in such abundance. So yes, just, it's a beautiful plant. I was just admiring mine today. I'm sorry, can you say your last sentence again? I said it's a very beautiful plant, and I was admiring mine today as it came into flower a couple of days ago. Do you yourself collect it? No. You don't? Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You are so welcome. Green blessing. Green blessing. Hello. Susan, we have a 512 area code. Yes, ma'am. I made sure that I got that locked in. Okay, good. 512, can you hear us? Uh, Yes, I believe so. Is that awesome? Hi. Um, hello, I have a question about harvesting Echinacea purpurea root. Um, I have a plant, it's probably about five years old um, at least, and I have harvested the roots before. Um, I know that the optimum time, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, in the fall, uh, but considering the kind of shortages going on right now with uh, some of these particular plants, I was going to um, go ahead and harvest them now to make a tincture. Um, is, I mean, is there any reason why I would not want to harvest the roots in the spring? Well, Echinacea is a perennial plant, which means it comes back year after year, yes? Yes. And during the spring and summer and fall, there's above-ground growth, yes? Right. Mm-hmm. And during the winter, is there above-ground growth? 
No. Yeah. It, it um, I mean, it's sort of, cause I live in Austin, Texas. So, <laughs> but for right. the most part, no. <laughs> so, for, but for the most part, no. So what, is going on is that the plant, the above ground parts of the plant, help feed the root. Mm-hmm. And then the root is what the next year's plant is made of. So the idea about harvesting roots in the fall is that they have, they're at their m- maximum amount of being fed. Mm-hmm that the above-ground parts have fed the roots all spring and summer and early fall, and you wait till late fall, early winter, and so you get the juiciest, best-fed roots. Mm-hmm. The end of the winter as we move into spring and the roots galvanize to start making above-ground parts, that if you dig them then, that you're getting the least possible stuff you can from the root. Mm, I see. Now, whether or not that's totally true, you would actually need a laboratory for it, wouldn't you? Right, yes. So you might want to say, well, I'm interested in the alkaloids called, uh, um, you know, echinaceids. And I, you know, what is the level of those in this spring dug root? And what's the level in this fall dug root? Now, we know about terroir. Um, from wine, right? Yeah. I have a friend who's an oniophile, and he cannot just, you know, tell you, oh, you know, this is a good, you know, Burgundy, or this is a good, you know, whatever. I know nothing about wine. Um, but he can tell you um, that, where it was grown. So you say, oh, this is a French wine, or this is a German wine, or this is an Australian wine. In fact... Uh, this man can actually usually tell you what vineyard it was grown at in that country. Wow. (laughs) How can he do that? Because of terror. Because there's a different earth and a different atmosphere in each different place. Mm -hmm. So it may be that your spring dug echinacea root is as good as somebody else's fall dug echinacea root because of different terroir. Right. How does echinacea purpurea like growing in Austin? Is it happy with it? Mine's done pretty well. Um, it's, uh, I wouldn't say that it's, uh, I mean, I really left it to do its thing, to be honest. I haven't done much in the way of fertilizing or anything like that occasionally um i'll do a little bit of soil amenities but i mean occasionally as in like once every couple of years or something so uh is a weed it shouldn't need anything okay yeah well considering that it's left by itself in the bed it's uh doing very well it hasn't um and by doing very well you mean there's now a big Five years later, there's a big patch of echinacea. Mm, yeah, there's about three uh, plants usually there, like three separate little uh, plants that grow. Uh, in the, yeah, it's a pretty big patch. Well, that's barely struggling by. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So then it's not For really. For a five-year period in a place where echinacea is happy, it will go from one plant to maybe 25 to 50 plants. I see. 
I mean, I've seen it do better in other places, but I do think that they're probably tending to it a little more than I am. So I do think it has to be like cultivated in this region for sure. So there are there's some information about whether or not you want to harvest it in the spring, and all of those things can be shoved aside if what you're saying is I need echinacea and I need echinacea within the next six weeks, so I'm going to harvest it now and make tincture, and all the rest of it can just go hang. Well, I also have some echinacea and gustifolia dried root, and so, but I know that typically when you're using the dried root, just from learning from you over the years, that it isn't at its optimum at six weeks like the fresh root. So that's also an option. On the there. other hand, the Augustafolia is so much more effective even dried than the purpuri is fresh. Ah, I see. Okay. And you can start using it at six weeks. It just gets better and better and better the longer it sits. Right. Yeah. So I definitely want to do that one then. And I might leave the, I'm also worried about just harvesting, you know, from the plant. And then like you're saying, it's not really doing, it's not thriving necessarily. So I don't want to take um, from it and then have it struggle more when it's trying to, um, you know, do its best to grow at the moment. And really, so. you'll see a main echinacea root and the little, little babies growing around it. Okay. And what many people do is plant out the babies, giving them room to grow and harvest the mother root. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I only harvested it once before, and I guess I sort of didn't have a whole lot of information. I just knew that I was getting some roots and I took those and chopped them up and put them in a tincture. And I was actually kind of surprised that it came back, but so obviously I don't think I got the mother root, I guess then because it did come back. Cause I was, I wasn't sure how that worked. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then I did have one more question about the alcohol use in tincturing. Um, I normally always just use the 100 proof vodka. Um, however, I was given a bottle of 190 proof grain alcohol. And I know I did take some classes at the wildflower herb school here in Austin. And I know some of my classmates use that in their medicine making. I've never done that. Um, I was thinking... I know that maybe if I did like a different ratio or something, not the simpler method, but if I put maybe 40% uh, water or, you know, 40% alcohol and 60% water or something like that, I could use it. But I was wondering what your thoughts were on using Everclear, basically. A simpler uses one herb at a time. It doesn't have anything to do with alcohol or how much water is in the alcohol. Oh, okay. When I first started making tinctures in the state where I lived, it was against the law to sell Everclear because it constitutes a clear threat to life. I certainly do not suggest it as a lifestyle, but there are a great many people, especially in Russia, who drink up to a liter of vodka a day. 
with no mm, severe health consequences. It was certainly my experience. Alcohol and I do not get along well at all. If I drink half a glass of wine, I feel like I've been run over by a car, and the next day I feel like I've been run over by a train. I mean, it's just not fun. Beer, even worse. So when I was in college, I thought, oh boy, I'm going to have no social life at all because the social life in college, and unfortunately I hear it's still true, revolved almost totally around alcohol and alcohol consumption. And I thought, I just can't do it. And an older woman turned me on to vodka and tomato juice, vodka and orange juice. Mm -hmm. And I could have a big drink that I could have all evening long, so it appeared that I was drinking, and I could even drink some of it, and it would not do me in. And I did some investigation and found out that, yes, indeed, for some reason, alcohol is much kinder to the liver than any other. Vodka is much kinder than any other alcohol. It doesn't really matter what the vodka is made of. Since I decided that herbs were going to be my primary medicine, and that I was probably going to take them in quantity and frequently, I decided that it was probably best if I used a tincturing medium that wouldn't kill me. Mm -hmm. As I was saying previously, using 100-proof vodka means that I get water-soluble and alcohol-soluble substances from the plant. You can certainly take Everclear and add water to it, but it doesn't make it the same as 100-proof vodka, and it doesn't act the same as 100-proof vodka. Hmm. When I make a tincture with 100-proof vodka, the after it's been made, the herb in it looks good. It looks happy. When I make tinctures with Everclear, after the tincture is ready, the herb looks fried, wasted, dead, destroyed. Oh, that's interesting. The desire always with plants has been bigger, stronger, stronger medicine. For thousands and thousands of years, it was us and the plants, and we gave the plants, shall we call it personhood? The way I was talking about Madame Yarrow, that's certainly personhood, right? Mm-hmm, yes. Then we come to a time where we learn distilling, we have alcohol, and we have a group of people calling themselves alchemists. And they, of course, are herbalists. But they are not interested in the personhood of the plant. They are interested in the constituents of the plant. And they are going to use alcohol and fire and a huge variety of different things to discover different constituents in the plants. It's going to turn out that different constituents in plants are drugs. And that by drying, grinding or powdering the plant and pouring 
high proof alcohol over it that you can preferentially extract the most poisonous drug-like parts from the plant. I'm not interested. I'm not a druggist. I'm not a pharmacist. It's not what I want to be. I want to be an herbalist, and I want herbal medicine to be people's medicine. I want it to be simple. I want it to be safe, and I want it to be effective for anyone. I cannot say that about grain alcohol. Does that mean you shouldn't use it? No, but I suspect you won't be happy with your results. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> that answered my question. The I just primary to... reason that herbal tinctures are made in grain alcohol is that if you are a manufacturer, you can buy grain alcohol without having to pay federal and state tax on it. Oh. So if you go out and buy vodka, more than 50% of the price of that is taxes. Mm-hmm. So if you're a manufacturer and you don't have to pay those taxes, you have to pay the taxes if you use vodka, but you don't have to pay the taxes if you use Everclear. And so it becomes the obvious choice for anybody who wants to make a tincture and sell it. Right. It doesn't make it the best choice unless what you want is to make the most drug-like tincture possible. So then with the um, – so, oh, okay, wait. I guess I just picked up one of my tinctures from Herb Farm, and I guess I had thought one of them was made with grain alcohol or something, but if it says grain alcohol, then it then it means it's Everclear, I guess. Yes. Okay. Grain alcohol, Everclear, high-proof alcohol, those are all the same thing, Hundred usually 190 to 198 proof. Do you know what cane alcohol, certified organic cane alcohol is? What's the proof? Um, 43 to 53%. It's made from cane. It's made from sugar cane. Okay. Hmm. You can make alcohol from just about anything. Sugar cane is yeah. an especially good thing to make it from because you, you know, run it through a mill and you squeeze out the, the sugar cane juice and then you have all this sugar cane left. And you can, you know, do stuff with that. Or you just take the, the sugar cane juice and that ferments. Mm-hmm. And apparently it ferments pretty fast, too, and makes pretty hard brew. Uh, okay. To do our treasures of the tropics this past January, we went to several sugar mills and saw the the process, the simple process of making sugar. We didn't go any to, into any big manufacturing sugar plants. We we liked uh, going to the smaller farms, friendlier. And one of them was making cane alcohol. That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I probably won't use it, but I don't know what to do with it then. <laughs> I don't know what to do with <laughs> this bottle of 
hundred oh, hand wash, you know, disinfectant. Yeah. That's what someone said actually, like you could make hand sanitizer with it or something, which of course is, you know, everybody's doing right now, I guess. So Yes. <laughs> Topic of the week. Yep. That well, as I continue you. to maintain, none of it's gonna work, none of it's gonna do any good at all, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I did catch your talk with Paul Bergner, so thanks for doing that. That was really informative, and I enjoyed it. You're welcome. Let's let the next caller through unless you have more questions. Nope, I don't have any more. Thank you so much for for your time. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. Good night. Okay, so Susan, we have some questions from the online listeners to address, and it looks like when the last caller call dropped off, unfortunately, I'm figuring out the technology here on my end, and I could see that she was connected to us the same. Um, unfortunately, had to disconnect. Have a call. Susan, so um, hello. Susan, I apologize. Hi, I apologize, but what happens when one caller drops off? It's dropping off you, so I figured out how to keep that from happening. I apologize. Um, we have a question from listeners about um, bone set, and if one was to get bone set but they did not have a tincture prepared, would you make it as an infusion and use it the same way you have directed folks to use it? I'm not sure there's a human being capable of consuming bone set infusion. It's hideously bitter. What part of the bone set? Um, you know, they didn't specify. So... So the four questions that we need to have answered in order not to have folklore but to actually have herbal medicine are what part of the plant, when is it harvested, how is it prepared, and how much is used. Traditionally, in North America, the root of bone set was indeed harvested and boiled up often decocted, but people then were much more used to bitter things. That's very interesting. So if you had good dried Eupatorium perfoliatum, bone-set root, then making an infusion, and perhaps even decocting that infusion, in other words, boiling it down and taking it by the spoonful, which is probably about as much as you could choke down at a time, could be effective. Well, I hope that helps our listeners who were interested in knowing that. makes a lot of sense why you suggest that it's used as a tincture. 
So if anyone tries it as an infusion, let us know how that goes. Um, I've had some questions also about horsetail, which is getting some popularity. Is this an herb that you use, and what do you think of horsetail, Susan? Horsetail, Equisetum arvens, is the one that grows around me. There's different varieties of horsetail, especially east coast to west coast. There are very different varieties. The kind that grows on the east coast is the European kind, and it's the, the kind that has traditionally been used for medicine. The kind that grows on the west coast is a much taller variety, looking a lot like bamboo, and um, is often used for scouring things. There's a, a, a kind of a, a lot of folklore around um, horsetail in India. It's said that if you drink horsetail tea, it will completely restore your teeth and get rid of um, any cavities. I have not known that to be true, but I certainly have seen drinking horsetail tea to um, help people who are getting treated for periodontal disease. People whose treatments don't seem to be working, they start drinking horsetail on a regular basis. The treatments start to work. It's pretty interesting to see. So I'm, meanwhile, I am looking in Native American Ethnobotany by Daniel Mormon under Eupatorium perfoliatum. And... Um, the Abnaki used an infusion against colds as um, a way to sweat out a fever as an emetic um, and as a diuretic, as a febrifuge. And the infusion was used against colds and flus. <clears throat> this, the, one of the problems with this book is it doesn't actually say what part of the plant is used. The Chippewa um, <clears throat> did not use it as an infusion. The Delaware made an infusion of the roots. The Iroquois made an infusion of the roots. The Maniami used an infusion of the whole plant against fever. The Micmac um, used parts of the plant for various things. The Mohegan made the bitter infusion. It's bitter. Uh, when there was colds, fevers, um, colds and fevers, the Penobscot um, infusion of the plant for spitting up blood as a kidney tonic, the Seminole, a decoction as an emetic, fever medicine, the Shinnecock as a bitter infusion taken to get rid of colds and uh, it was also a plant used as a divinatory plant by the Iroquois. Wow. Yeah. You know, if it's you're like, a, you know. It's plant. It's so versatile. And I, I only wow. read about 10% of the entries, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take up the whole If you are like serious about your herbalism, you need Native American Ethnobotany by Daniel Mormon. It's okay, not you heard gonna, it here, folks. It's not gonna answer all four of those questions, is it? It's not gonna answer, right? Didn't always tell us what part of the plant was used. It 
didn't always tell us how it was prepared. It hardly ever tells us what the dose is. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or, or when it was harvested. Yeah. But it's certainly an incredible, incredible reference for how these North American plants have been used by the people who lived with them for thousands of years. You know, I love that, Susan. I agree. It's really very enlightening to recognize what did the people who were living here do with these plants? And I have talked to you about something called bluebells up here in Alaska. They call it long lungwort. The natives called it long lung. So some people started calling it long lungwort. We had chatted about it. I'm working with it. If I get a cough, I'll let you know. Is it for long lung? Probably. <laughs> right? What fun! What they're talking about. Yeah, thank you. It's been really fun. It's a wonderful plant. Yeah. So good to know about horsetail and natives and checking in with that information. And we do have a caller. And in okay, about and this 10 week minutes, more than ever, I am going to need you to give me like, it'll be five minutes before a Barbara is there, because usually yes. I can just look at my telephone and see how long I've been on the phone, but because I've been off and on and off and on, you know, it says oh, I've been on the phone eight talking. minutes, so that's not going to help me at all. You bet. I will tell you when um, it's about time. I'll, I'll give you a five-minute warning. And Great. We have that's a perfect. Five, that's her thing. Okay, perfect. and our next five, caller. Five, four, one. Yes, five, four, one. Thank you, Susan. Hello? Hi, I have a question about um, making a tincture. So I was given um, a bag of herbs from Mountain Rose Herbs, and they aren't usually things I would, I haven't ordered them myself, but I was given some a few different ones. And so one of them is witch hazel, and um, I was thinking of using it for sits baths, for like postpartum moms and stuff. But I'm also wondering, do you ever make witch hazel tincture from the dried bark, or do you prefer to make it from the live plant? <laughs> what would you want to use your witch hazel tincture for? Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure, just to have it on hand, because I have a big bag of it. So okay. I just think Preparing remedies. <laughs> right. Witch hazel is an astringent. Mm-hmm. It's often called a primary astringent because that's primarily what it does is it astringes things. In other words, it tightens things up. That's why you're thinking of it for a postpartum sits bath, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's n- not a lot of call for witch hazel tincture. Okay. I have witch hazel growing on my property and have been living here since 1978, and I don't think I've ever made a witch hazel tincture. Okay. Gotcha. Well, Doesn't mean so you what? couldn't or that, I, that I'm not missing something because I can miss something. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I don't have a lot of call for astringents, and, mm-hmm. you know, I need to get the blackberry out of my gardens. It's not good in the gardens, and blackberry root is also a primary astringent. So if I just want to have some primary astringent tincture set aside, then blackberry root's going to do it for me. Okay. Basically, all of the plants in the rose family are astringents, and some of them really excellent astringents, sink foils and 
blackberries and, and so on, all excellent astringents. And I tend to like um, those things um, when I'm looking for an astringent. So, again, I don't tend to use the witch hazel, although I buy witch hazel at the drugstore and use it um, for helping to remove odors and excess oil. Mm. For instance, I was part of a team that was taking care of a bedridden woman in her 90s, and we actually could not even get her in the shower, and we would give her witch hazel baths. And we would okay. wash her hair with witch hazel. And the and extract, that- the extract which is made from the actual witch hazel that you can buy in the drugstore is one of the few herbal remedies still available in drugstores. Um, so would if you if you had a, a this bag, would you yeah. um just make an infusion of it or how would you Why are we it? making anything of it? Is there I some reason I... that it can't just sit there smiling at you? <laughs> I suppose it could. I think I'm just thinking that bark will of... be medicinally active for about 25 to 30 years. Okay. So, so if I find a use for it at some point, it will. Um, so, postpartum cyst baths would be great. I do make those for my friends when they have babies. And there you go. And you uh, want just a bag of dried root for that, right? Yeah, great. I actually I, suspect I you'll to... probably use it all up that way eventually. Eventually, right? Well, I also had a similar question about um, white willow bark, which is. Um, I like I, I my husband had a toothache which he ended up getting the tooth pulled but I I was really we worked we worked with Skullcap and Skullcap really helped and he didn't end up getting into too much trouble with a lot of pain but at one point his tooth had bothered him a lot and I kept going what other than CBD could be like a good painkiller and I was wondering about how sometimes white willow can similar to like an aspirin effect? No. Willow is aspirin. Right. It's not similar. Okay. It's not effect. It is aspirin. Willow is salix, S-A-L-I-X. And remember that the herbal compounds are named after the first plant they're found in. So salicin and salicylic acid were first found in willow acetus. Salicylic acid is aspirin. Okay. So it is aspirin. And yes, it can be tinctured. And even the dry bark? It can be made into a vinegar. And I had one native woman say to me, look at the willow when it's starting to bud and look how much like swollen knuckles it appears. She said, so what we would do is when the willow was starting to bud, we would boil that up and drink it to help relieve our hands that had worked so hard over the winter and were aching in the joints. Hmm. And I thought just the whole story thread of that was fascinating to me, you know, mm-hmm. the way yeah. that, the, the, that the plant was personalized and the, the appearance of it was related to people and then that it was used at a particular time of the year 
to deal, you know, not with like a disease, arthritis, but our hands work very hard all winter and our joints are sore. And so here's this beautiful willow buds and we're going to brew that up and do it. When I worked mm-hmm. at, at health food stores, we used to sell, I don't know if it's still available, but I suspect a little tin, just like a little aspirin tin with nine tablets of white willow bark in it. And you took two, just like you would take two aspirin. Hmm. <laughs> Someone gave me a wonderful old advertisement from a National Geographic, I think from back in the 40s or 50s. And there was a white doctor, male, sitting behind a desk with his white <laughs> nurse, female, standing beside him, offering him the telephone. And the caption says, take the bark of two willows and call me in the morning. Wow, cool. And then the lead (laughs) line on the paragraph says, aren't you glad there's aspirin? You don't have to take willow bark. Oh, what? It was an ad for drugs. Right. Right? I was really interested that it says to take the willow bark. No. It was an ad to say, oh, golly gee, aren't you glad we're not back in that? You know, old time. You had to rely on plants and take the bark of two willows. No, you can go to the drugstore now and buy aspirin. It's safe. It's standardized. Yeah, I know. I mean, (laughs) I just want to be excited to have these things on my shelf because I, you know, every once in a while I have reasons to, you know. um, We all do. We all do. Life can be tough. So, so. So this bag of white willow bark, you can chew a couple pieces? You can chew it. You can chew it. You can make a tea of it. You can make an infusion of it. You can make a tincture of it. You can make a vinegar of it because it contains salicin, and vinegar is acetic acid, and then you have acetosalicylic acid. The Um, vinegar of it is literally the same compound as aspirin. Okay. That is so cool. I love that. I thank you for for informing me about that too because I sometimes I, I mean I usually just order herbs that I I get inspired and that one I see on the side of the river a lot and we work with kids and we teach them about if you're injured in nature you can you know find the willow and the willow will help you out in some way but here I have a bag of it so now I have some on my shelf which is um also my son wanted to say hi he always says are you calling Susan tonight I just want to tell her hello sure (laughs) okay hi hi Hi. (laughs) bring blessings (laughs) thanks Susan Well, thank you. I think those are my questions for this evening. Good night. Green blessings. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Susan. Susan, we have nine minutes left, and we do have some more callers with questions. All right. Let's see how many we can answer. All right. So we have an area code 720. 720, can you hear us? 
720. You are patched through. Can you hear us? All right. Well, 720, we will move on. I'm sorry. I've got them on the, on the line there. I wonder if they can hear us. Are you there? Okay. Susan, we had a couple other questions about the um, COVID concerns and taking elderberry and the cytokine, the, the, is it cytokine, cytokine storm? Cytokine. Cytokine storm. And people were concerned about how that even got started theoretically. Um, to assume that elderberry could create that kind of reaction in your body and feed a virus. I'm not sure if that's something that you want to speak to any more than you already have. I really, I do not have, you know, anything truly, you know, new to say about it, um, except perhaps we might cast ourselves back, oh gosh, I guess it was almost 15 years ago, and some people decided that they were going to have like a new kind of herbalism. And this kind of herbalism was going to be evidence-based herbalism. And they sure didn't mean, you know, Daniel Mormon. They meant scientific evidence. And they didn't even really mean studies. What they meant was they were going to look at the constituents of the plants and decide how those plants could and should be used by looking at the constituents. Some plants that we all know and love, for instance, Madame Yarrow, were declared by the <clears throat> evidence-based herbalist to be completely unsafe to use. There are four categories of poisons that we can find in plants. Alkaloids, glycosides, essential oils, and resins. And Yarrow contains numerous examples from each of those categories. Therefore, it is obviously poisonous and unusable in any way at all. It works straight on pink eye for me. <laughs> I trust it. But we would all say you're full of it. As a matter of fact, most people don't even know there was a movement called evidence-based herbalism because it just died, Right. Because that's not evidence. Looking at the constituents does not tell you what the plant will do. This is something that has just been, you know, told to me over and over and over again throughout my entire time as an herbalist, starting from my very first teacher, who looked at me very seriously and said, when it comes to herbs, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts interested and you can look at the constituents in plants and you can find out things about the plants from looking at constituents, but you can never know what the plant is capable of doing from looking at constituents because the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So evidence-based people looking at, not even looking at the constituents of elder, which is really kind of the joke, but looking at descriptions of how elder works and people being loose with their language and saying elder stimulates the immune system. These people decided stimulating the immune system means that it increases and stimulates the release of cytokines, and they believe in the story of the cytokine storm, which 
Paul somewhat debunks, Paul Bergner somewhat debunks, um, by pointing out that there's a whole bunch of different kinds of cytokines and that different kinds are produced at different times when you have a cold or a flu or fighting off a virus. And that we certainly at this point um, don't have any evidence of any kind that any herb can cause a cytokine storm. I use my elderberry this with statement is, in the and lack of any evidence to the contrary, it appears to me to be completely safe to use herbs in dealing with the flu. Yes. So the second part of that question was about elderberry leaves. What do you think about elderberry no, leaves? No, 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 yeah, no, 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 Yep. The berries okay. are okay as long as they are cooked or dried, right? Remember those five ways of breaking the cell wall, apply enough heat, freeze, ferment, dehydrate, or cover in oil. So you got to be, you know, you don't want to be mucking around with raw elderberries, All right? But not the leaves and not the bark, not the twigs. I had somebody at the Zoom meeting say, oh, I didn't have any elderberries, so I made a tincture of the twigs. I said, well, don't take it unless you want to be throwing up for days. Right. That was what I thought. It's, you, know, you don't want to shut other folks down, but I thought, well, I guess if, if you need to really puke, I suppose I don't know. You know, going to ask an expert, and you certainly know, Susan, so thank you for confirming about the elder leaves for those folks out there, elder leaves and bark. No. No, please. There we go. Berry yeah. and the elderflower so, that's used. What do you think of elderflower? I, I, I do that one, so I'm hoping I'm... Elderflower, I'm wonderful. Wonderful, oh, yeah. wonderful. And I bow to Justine, who looked out her window and saw her elder in full bloom and thought, bad word, bad word, bad word, bad word. I don't have time to do anything with that. And she just, like, went out grab the flower, stuff them in a jar, and pour honey over it. And she thought, you know, then later on, the honey will preserve them, and then later on, if I want, I can just, like, rinse the honey off of them and then tincture them. But the elderflower honey was so good that that's now what we make instead of tincture. We just make elderflower honey. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. That sounds delicious. Yeah, Justine. Such a flower. I know. Oh. Thank you, Justine. Oh, wonderful. So we have... Absolutely the best. Okay, I think we might I have time for one last fire. short question. Um, let's see if we we have um, no other questions from callers this evening, though we have quite a few callers on. Okay, so, well, why don't I go ahead and introduce Barbara Whitehorse Vogue, because I'm sure it's yeah, waiting in the wings. Barbara yes, Whitehorse Vogue wears many hats. She's an artist, an equine podiatrist a forest and weed farmer, herbalist, and teacher of many things. Barbara is passionate about food, medicine, living simply, and helping others learn to do the same. She has been using herbal medicine and food as medicine for more than 40 years. Barbara lives on 150 acres in central West Virginia, where she creates her life and works in the spirit of reciprocity. Barbara invites anyone who wants to learn to come and visit Spotted Horse Farm. 
Spotted Horse Farm is a member of the United Plant Savers Botanical Sanctuary Network. Me too. Work exchange is always welcome. Barbara's on a mission. She has both short-term goals and long-term goals which intermingle and spiral around one another. She believes that we all have the right to decide our own course of actions regarding our life and health choices. She believes in living life in the spirit of reciprocity. She believes in sharing, sharing knowledge, sharing ideas, sharing economy. And she believes in the ability of the plants to help us heal. Welcome to the show, Barbara. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Susan. It's so nice to talk to you. Yes, quite. How are you this evening? I am thrilled that my blood roots started blooming today. Mine's been blooming for about two weeks. What? You must have different patches of it because I've rarely seen a blood root plant bloom for more than 36 hours. I Well, there's this one patch that I have that's kind of in a sunny area, and it started blooming, and it's kind of grown. The whole thing hasn't bloomed at one time. Exactly. The beginning of it bloomed, and then it's moving on and moving on, and it's moving just on, yes, beautiful. The flowers themselves are very short-lived. Yes, yes. So I'm actually in ephemera right now. The ephemera, right. Um, I am sitting in town. We had a huge storm this evening, and uh, it, the hail. I drove to town because my cell phone service has been kind of sketchy, and I didn't want it dropping me while we were talking. But the hail was so much that I'm driving along the road, and it was like driving on a winter day. The road was covered. It was oh, amazing. my goodness. Yeah, it was amazing. Mm. I was saying to myself today, do you dare think you have made your last fire? <laughs> <laughs> There's always that time when you're eyeing the space that the firewood is in and thinking, could I free up that space for something else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. maybe not yet. You know, you talk often about cultivating life in the spirit of reciprocity. Could you talk about that and what that means to you and why you want to cultivate that? Yes. To me, it is one of the most important things in my life. And um, most people have an understanding of a reciprocal relationship. I do something for you. You do something for me. But I feel that it has many deeper layers And I like to relate to it in terms of the plants and the animals. The plants and the animals give of themselves freely. They don't ask anything in return. And believe that as human beings, we can work on doing that same thing, approaching our life in a way that we are giving ourselves. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, in her book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, I don't know if she says it in the book, but she does say it in in other places that gratitude is one of the greatest forms of reciprocity. And I feel like there are levels of gratitude as well. You know, we have gratitude that's on the surface, and then we have the mid-level kind of gratitude. Then we have the really, really deep gratitude that is a prayer. And so I try to do things in my daily life I do ceremony every day. I pray every day. First thing I do when I wake up and I express my gratitude to life. And when I'm working with the plants, I'm so grateful that they are just 
giving themselves to me. And last summer, for some reason, I had this need or this desire to make massive quantities of some tinctures. And I don't really know why that came up in my head, but I did. I made massive quantities of elderberry and bone set. And I had a lot of um, echinacea angustifolia that I made from dried root. And um, this year I formed a West Virginia chapter of Herbalists Without Borders. And I have been able to send out care packages to people. I made a care package that had uh, elderberry, echinacea, motherwort, bone set, and osha. And I was able to send it out to those that were really financially challenged. I was able to send it for free. For those that could afford to pay, they paid. For those that could pay it forward, they did. And to me, that is reciprocity. Yes. And a lot of it hinged on your willingness to do as you were moved to do without having a rational explanation. Exactly. Our mind so often gets in the way of what our truth really is. Your inner knowing said, get out there and make these tinctures and make a lot of them, and you didn't resist. You said, okay. You know, it's one of the things that I find myself saying, to almost every apprentice, which is I'm asking you to do as I tell you to do, not because I'm any special thing, but because if you will learn to listen to me, then you will learn to listen to that inner voice, which does not repeat itself. And that is very true, and I appreciate that so much about you. You know, that inner message, if you don't pay attention to it, not only is it not going to repeat itself, it might not even tell you the next thing. Yes. And our dominant culture is so um, distracting from that. You know, watch this, buy that, be afraid of this. And it keeps people in this cycle of mind activity that doesn't allow them that space to really feel into what is needed. Yes, Elisa Starkweather and I roomed together at Goddess Spirit Rising, and we laughed because it was like we were doing a timeshare on the on the room because her guides want her to get up at 3 a.m. and do ceremony, and my guides want me to stay up <laughs> until 1 a.m. to do ceremony. So we were always sleeping at opposite times. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I said, I'll take the midnight shift, and she said, I'll take the sunrise shift. And I said, we got it all covered there. So it's okay, just keep your mind in so far as you can out of it. Now you work with horses too. Horses are I do. Horses to me are like so reciprocal. I mean the goats are, but you kinda have to like establish deeply with the goat before there's that reciprocal reciprocity but I feel that like instantly with the horse the horse is going to size you up and see how much you're willing to give and give you exactly that much that's very true Um, my work with horses has really changed my life it was a childhood desire I didn't get involved with horses until my mid-30s and they truly did change my life and there's a reason that 
they're being used for uh, therapy in a lot of different ways, mental therapy, emotional therapy, physical therapy, because they do just that. They, they read you instantly. Their whole being is body language. And um, one of the things that I have most learned in my own life through horses is not only to read a horse's body language and develop a relationship with my horses, but to then be able to take that out into the world and look at what somebody is saying with their body and it either is or is not what they're saying with their mouth. So it has helped me to um, understand my human relationships better as well. Excuse me. The thing about horses is that they are so big and they are so fast and they, as you said, they size you up and you either have it with them or you don't. But that being said, you can earn their respect and you can receive um, a relationship of mutual respect and mutual trust with them. And it's very profound. Yes. So a equine podiatrist deals with horses' feet, yes? Yes. There's that very and big animal on four pretty small feet. <laughs> um, it, it's fascinating. And I'm going to read the definition of equine podiatry as written by my teacher, Casey LaPierre, because it states it very clearly. Um, the essence of applied equine podiatry is the conscientious study of the equine foot, always striving to expose it to proper environmental stimuli, making every effort to promote proper structure and function as we progress in achieving high performance. It is accepting the fact that the horse has the innate ability to heal itself and that domestication of the horse has caused imbalance and broken the golden rule of do no harm. So, in in layman's term, I'm a farrier, right? Which means I trim horses' feet for a living. <clears throat> but I'm not a farrier because the farrier science is uh, pretty much stopped in the late 1800s. And equine podiatry is a relatively new science, and it approaches hoof care in relation to the entire whole health of the horse. Say more. Well, I, um, I got involved with it because I wanted to be able to trim my own horse's feet. I was satisfied with my farrier, but he was retiring and I couldn't find someone else to do it. <clears throat> so um, I was working with a natural horsemanship trainer and he said, check out this guy, Casey. So I went to one of his three-day workshops for horse owners, and we, the first two days was the science. And I have to tell you, I'm not a scientific person, and 99% of this went right over my head. <coughs> but the important part stuck. And then the third day, we actually... And um, I got home, and I started trimming my own horses, and a friend of mine had a little old pony who had foundered, now, I'm not going to go into a founder a whole lot because um, it's a pretty complex issue that happens in a horse's foot, and it can be life-threatening. So they asked if I could help him, and I said, of course, I'll try. 
And so they brought him out to my house and um, I, I almost said, I don't think I can do anything, but I told him I would try. So I just followed the things that I learned in that three day course, which were very um, specific actions. You get rid of the infection, you trim the foot, you trim the hoof to be in balance with the internal foot. You change the nutrition if necessary. You change the environment if necessary. And then the horse does the rest. The horse has the innate ability to heal itself if we give them the proper environment. Well, three months later, that that little pony who was about to be put down before he came to my house was cantering down a gravel driveway. Cantering. And it just blew my mind. And I decided I want to do that. I want to do it for a living. So I went and I took um, all of the classes to get my diploma as a level one equine podiatrist. And then I took the advanced classes, which deal with um, founder and, and other foot diseases that are more complex issues. And one of the fascinating things for me about it, you talk about having a relationship with a horse. They have to really trust you to let you pick that foot up and hold it in your knees and nip it and, put other tools on it and stand there for as long as it takes because I'm a predator and they're a prey animal and I'm taking out a leg. So it has, it did a number of things for me. It helped me develop my own self-confidence in my own life and it helped me develop an an even deeper relationship with the horses. Wow. When I taught homesteading, I would bring a young goat in and we would trim the goat's hooves. And I would tell people, if you cannot be in a good enough relationship with a goat to trim its hooves, you probably shouldn't be taking care of animals. I agree completely. It's it's such an <laughs> elemental place. They, like the horse, they have a big body on these four tiny little feet. For those listening who haven't really thought much about this um, the reason that most animals like the ones we're talking about horses and goats and so on look like their legs are so long is because they're actually standing on their toes yes yeah they're not standing on their whole foot they don't have their heel on the ground like we do I don't know about the horses that I would hope that it's not true Uh, But the goats, I think, purposely step on my feet thinking that there's something wrong with them, that I have this long, fleshy thing out front. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Well, a horse will purposely step on you. And that's one of the things in understanding their body language is that every incremental motion, every incremental thing they do with their ears and their eyes and their shoulder is their language. And if a horse starts to lean towards you with with their shoulder, they're thinking maybe they might step on your foot. They're trying to push you out of the way. That's right. And, um, yeah. Yep. Yep. Every single bit of it. So the the reciprocal action there is the receiving and giving of trust. Yes. And through that trust, then you're being able to do something to make up for what it 
sounds like your teacher is saying is the sin of domesticating animals. Well, not so much that it's a sin because animals in domestication are a part of our lives. They um, are, and they most of them appear to be quite happy being domesticated. Yes, but we have a responsibility to make sure that if we have an animal in domestication in our care, that we offer it the best environment and the best life possible. And part of that is their health care. And part of that is um, allowing them to be, I allow my horses to be in as natural an environment as possible. I do ride them. I work with them. I teach people with them. But they have 20 acres that they get to run around on, up and down hills and through creeks. And um, they are healthy because of that. So, yeah, I don't think sin is the right word. I think that... uh, We've created, in in some respects, domestication has created an imbalance. There are many of us that work very hard to uh, shift that, but there's a lot of it that's still out there. A lot of that imbalance is still out there. You go into the show world of horses, and I'm probably going to take a lot of flack for this, but there is a lot of mistreatment in in some of the, the showing worlds that is just, I consider sinful, actually. It's a whole other idea about what's important when you're showing. It is. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the health of the horse. I was going to say, and it has nothing to do with how healthy the horse is. That's, That's not what what the prize is given for. In right. fact, in some ways, we might say that that it's, it's somewhat ignored, as though it's almost not important. But that, you know, being whatever it is, um, what you are doing is restoring what Juliet de Berkeley Levy uh, would call natural rearing that you're giving your horses some of the same access to nature that they would have if they weren't domesticated. Yes, and there are more and more people starting to do that. And the the natural horse movement, um, the natural horsemanship movement had a lot to do with that. And it's growing and more people and even people that are doing shows now are starting to treat their horses and offer them a much more natural and healthy environment. So things are changing. Yes. Yes, you know, it's it is very very laborious to take care of animals. If you don't really Especially in the winter time. <laughs> if you don't really like them, you're probably not going to take care of them for very long. That's true. So what's left are the people who really do care about animals. And, you know, we all get bad information and sometimes follow it. It can happen to anybody. Well, the way we do it is like this, you know, until we have, you know, enough stuff under our belt to say, well, that may be the way you do it, but I'm not doing it that way because I don't like it that way. Yes, and that's very prominent in in the farrier industry. It's still... um, 
largely a, a man's world and it's very macho and very stuck in tradition. But the interesting thing about having taken the classes through the Institute of Applied Equine Podiatry is that 90% of his students are women, middle-aged women. And we start because we want to trim our own horses, and then we love it so much we go into careers for it. Amazing. Yeah, it is. Wow. (laughs) That is Fantastic. Um, do you want people, well, you said that you want people to come and visit you and work exchange is always welcome. How could people get in touch with you if they're interested in doing that? They can uh, go to my Facebook page, Spotted Horse Farm. Actually, I have two Facebook pages. Spotted Horse Farm is my farm page, and with the spirit of the horse is my equine page. Um, you could also... I don't know if you can send me a message through my website. That would be the best way. My website is spottedhorsefarm.com. And then my email is barb at with the spirit of the horse.com. And people can always email me, but you have to put in the subject who you are and, and what you're asking because I delete any junk mails immediately. If I don't know who it's from. So in the, that, line that says what it is say um, want to visit or more specific than that Um, yeah say say regarding visit that would be a good thing to regarding okay good regarding visit regarding visit wonderful wonderful You are very and sharing, and if people come to visit, you're going to be able to teach and share with them. What are the what are other ways that you teach and share? You talked about herbalist without borders and other things that you do. Well, I teach. Gosh, I've taught so many different things over the years. Whenever someone stays with me, they learn to cook. They learn to cook really simple, nutritious food. I was one of the original health food stores, health food store cooks back in the mid seventies, and um, I learned to cook largely macrobiotically, um, and I still follow that example of balance in my cooking. So they'll learn to cook um, whole foods, beans, grains. They'll learn to make sauerkraut. They'll learn to use the wild foods that we forage for. Um, They'll learn about wild mushrooms. They'll learn about horses. Um, They, I do a number of different crafts. I do fibers of different kinds and on rainy days or days when we feel like we need to be slow, I'll teach people how to braid or um, do other fiber things. I'll basically teach anything that I know. Oh, how wonderful. I am so, you know, so always in such a heart-passionate state with the fiber arts because it is, you know, one of women's real special skills. And I really love the um, anthropologists who say that it shouldn't be the Iron Age, it should be the Net Age. I'm sorry, it shouldn't be the Stone Age, it should be the Net Age, right? Because really... I read that 
book that you recommended. Um, I think it was called Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years. Right? Is that an amazing book? You recommended book? Yes. And it's so, it's beautifully written, and it is so descriptive of how women really played a major role in the advance of technology in this world. True fibers. Face it, gang. Monkeys use stones, but they don't. <laughs> but they don't make nets. Oh gosh! All right, so it was true. you know the Australian women roll it on their thigh. They thigh roll, really primitive way to make fiber. And you see the older women, and their their thighs are somewhat scarred from a lifetime of rolling fiber. And I think, you know, with such pride of, you know, the woman who learned to turn a heel in a sock, my goodness, what an amazing thing. I've knitted one sock. Right? Um, Yeah, I'm not a, knitting is not my forte. And if I really pursue it, it's because I want to knit my own socks. I primarily, um, I love to weave. And I'm getting ready to set my loom back up, but I've primarily been braiding and um, hitching with horse hitching with horse hair over the last ten years or so, and uh, doing card weaving with horse hair, and brought that into the the fiber part of my artwork. Beautiful! Wow! Wow! That's amazing. So many fun things to do. You don't just work with horses, right? You also work with cats and dogs? I do. Um, not on a professional level, but what what has occurred with me being a professional animal care provider in the horse world is that people started asking me um, different advice about their other animals. I live with, I only have one dog now. I always had a lot of dogs, and I have a few cats, Um and I've had many other pets over the years, and um, I just love having animals in my life. Uh, indeed, I, I do too. It's a, certainly a lot of work, but I always find it um, some of the most satisfying work of my life, and it has uh, certainly taught me um, so much about responsibility. You know, I was as I was going out to the barn last night, I was remembering the last time I had the flu and how I wanted nothing, nothing more than just to lay on the floor, but it was time to milk the goats. Oh, yes. I know about that. And so you find it in yourself to get up off the floor and go out and take care of your animals. You just find it. You think, I don't have it. I don't have it at all. But you somehow find it. And isn't that a profound experience? To, to, because we get these flus and we, we really do feel like we've just been hit by a truck and we want to lay in bed. But we're able to go deeper inside of ourselves and pull ourselves through it. And then lie in bed. I'm certainly yeah. sick. That you lie in bed. I'm also saying that there's something about having the responsibility of those animals. Right? 
which is a different responsibility than having the responsibility of a child, although somewhat similar in that it's your responsibility and you have to take care of it, um, that really helps you find um, a reserve of energy that you didn't know you have, which I think then translates out into your day-to-day life and gives you a lot more confidence. I agree. Uh, more confidence and better health overall. Because of accepting that responsibility. Yes. Well, we are coming to the very end of the show. Barbara Whitehorse Volk, what a delight spend all of this time talking to you and getting to know you better. Thank you so much for being tonight. And what is it that you would like to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone who's been listening? Well, first, I want everyone to please look at Herbalist Without Borders. If you can donate, please donate, because it's an entirely uh, volunteer organization and doing good work all over the world. And um, check out my website, spottedhorsefarm.com, with the spirit of the horse, my Facebook pages. Write to me, ask me questions, come visit, work, learn, play. And thank you for your time. You know, I have this vision that one of the things that we are doing is reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. As I said, you know, I'm kind of a... um, I have this thing about fiber and fiber. It's in my alternate life. I'm a spinner and a weaver. Of course, I don't have time to do that, but nonetheless, in my fantasy alternate life, I am. And so thank you for doing exactly that, for helping us to reweave the healing cloak of the ancients with braids and fibers and horsehair and all of the wisdom that you have shared tonight. And thank you also for helping me with my goal of restoring herbal medicine as people's medicine. You are such a beautiful ally in this goal of mine, and I love the Herbalist Without Borders. It is so what we need and what, what I want to express is that herbal medicine is here for us, and we can help ourselves and help each other. Thank you so much, Barbara. White Horse Volk. And Catherine, you're doing great. Don't let the little glitches get to you. It's okay. Thank you also for your support and your help in reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients and making herbal medicine people's medicine. Good night, everybody. Be well. Good night. Green blessings. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.